Okay, good morning. Happy uh, day off from work. <laughs> we, um, we, have the privileges, uh, we have the privilege this week of not only reading Parsha Shmos, but of beginning the second book of the Torah, of Sefer Shmos. A transition I spoke about last Shabbos from uh, the birth of a family to the birth of a nation. And it's not coincidental that the book is named, or is called the Book of Names, which is an unusual title for a book. Names. In the Parsha, Names. And of course, the Parshios were designated because of the first word, or significant word, in the Parsha. But it can't be coincidental that that's the first significant word, thereby earning the designation for the Parsha and for the entire book, Shmos. We'll see today that names are very, very significant. Names are influential. Names have a a great impact. We have a a very important tradition of names. And so it's not just a coincidence that the Parsha begins with with the theme of names. So we'll do what we always do, which is an overview of the whole Parsha. And then delve into the, some, a few psukim uh, specifically together with their mafarshim. So the parsha begins, of course, Elishmos ben Yisrael by Mitzrayma. The names of all those who had come to Egypt. We're picking up where we last left off, reminding ourselves of the birth of emergence of a, a very special family. Seventy members, they came, they descended to Egypt. And uh, there Yosef died and his whole generation. And Vayaka Melech Hadashah Mitzrayim, there was a new king who arose on Egypt. And this Vayaka Melech Hadash, this new king who arose on uh, Egypt, of course we know the famous debate, was it the same king with a new perspective? Was it a new king who had forgotten all that Yosef and the Jewish people had done? But in any case, with that new king came a sense of insecurity, uh, paranoia, a sense of being threatened by the presence of this growing nation. And so they sought to... They sought to... uh, to minimize or diminish the, the growth of this nation through burdening them with tremendous amount of work and uh, with, the, with the burden of building Pitom um, and Ramses and so on. So as the Jewish people suffered, they, they, uh, they worked the Jewish people so incredibly hard. And the result was what they had hoped. The people became bitter. They became tired. They were spiritually exhausted. They were incapable. We'll say we'll see uh, in a few weeks, Parsha. They were incapable of even receiving a message of hope and of optimism of salvation, because of just how bitter they had come, crumbling under the burden, the overwhelming uh, workload that the Mitzrayim had imposed upon them. But in that context and in that background, in that environment, were two special women. One was named Shifra, and one was named Pua. And though the edict came down that the Jew, they were supposed to uh, murder all Jewish boys who were born, nevertheless, of course, they violated the edict and helped Jewish women continue to give birth. Paro summons them, asks them, what are you doing? They say, what can we do about it? Jewish women know what they're doing. If you've ever been to Shari Tzedek Hospital, you know. <laughs> Jewish women, I, my, my oldest daughter was born in Shari Tzedek Hospital. When we were first married, we were living in Israel. And... Um, it was our first child, but Yechever was in a room and on a floor with women who were having numbers 9, 10, 12, 14. You know, they were popping a baby out and getting up and walking around taking care of the other kids uh, five minutes later. So that's the description the Parsha has of the Jewish women in Mitzrayim too. Shifra and Pua tell Paro, what can we do? We're not there in time. We can't throw the babies in the Nile and destroy them because we're not there in time. I think remarkably, Paro buys it. <laughs> Paro, Paro. I wouldn't have accepted it so readily, but if you look in the Psukim, Paro accepts it. 
these uh, midwives, they were rewarded for their optimism, for their belief that there was yet a brighter future. And he made batim. Of course, we have a tradition. The batim, the homes he gave, made, were bate kuhuna, ulevia, umalchus. Homes of priesthood and of, of kingship. And uh, Paro commands all the people and so on. And then we have the portion that we're going to study today. A man goes, bless you, from base levi. A man goes from base levi. And he takes a woman who is bas levi. And they give birth and they hide the child. And they have to put him in the, in the river. We are all familiar with the story. And Bas Paro, whose name, by the way, is not provided, is, uh, is, uh, discovers this baby floating and takes the baby in. And the baby is raised in the palace. And then the baby is old enough, this Moshe. And by the way, we'll discuss today. We call him Moshe. In fact, I would venture to guess most in this room are not even familiar with Moshe's other names. And yet Moshe was bestowed other names by his mother, by his father, by the Almighty Himself. We neglect all of those names and instead we employ a name given by a non-Jewish princess who happened to have saved his life, but somebody, that is his legacy. He's known as Moshe Rabbeinu because of the name chosen by this woman whose own name is not revealed by the Psukim of, of Bas Paro. Moshe grows, he matures, he graduates the palace and he sees, of course, the pain, the suffering of his, uh, of his brothers, of his own nation. He goes out, he sees they're suffering. And he sees an Egyptian man smiting, hitting, a, uh, a fellow Jew. She looks both ways and he sees there's no man and he strikes the Mitzri. It's a moment of truth for Moshe. Right? Um, homiletically, many interpret, he looks here and there, Moshe was experiencing an existential identity crisis. Who is he? What's his identity? Is he the Mitzri who's raised in the palace? Is he the Egyptian who's raised by the daughter of Paro? Does he identify with the Egyptian people and the Egyptian culture and the Egyptian destiny? Or is he the Jew, born to a Jewish mother and father, a descendant of Avram, Yitzhak, and Yaakov, sharing in the suffering and the destiny of the Jewish people? Who is he? That was a moment of truth. He looked here and there, and he realized that if he tries to walk the balance between the two, he's not a man. If he's a mitzri, if he's pulled between being the Mitzri and being the Jew. So what does he do? Vayaches mitri He slaughters the Mitzri in him, homiletically some interpret. It means that he does, no longer lives with this tension, this dual identity, this dual citizenship. Who am I? Which one beats out which? The theme that we spoke about throughout Elul, Jewish exceptionalism. You remember the Rav's vort. Avram Avinu, I'm a resident and a stranger among you. Well, which one are we ultimately? When push comes to shove, are we the resident or are we the stranger? Which really is our identity first and foremost? So Moshe, in a moment of truth, Vayaches HaMitzri, he strikes the Mitzri. That's homiletically. Literally, of course, it means that by striking the physical Mitzri and seeking to protect his brother, he's chosen sides. He's, he's, he's elected to share in the destiny of the Jewish people. Because the story continues and he strikes again and he has to run and he flees. And uh, we all know the story. Again, just repeating very quickly. Um, and what happens, he goes to Midian where he discovers, we spoke about this also, if you remember, we spoke at length about this in Sefer Bratius, why so many of our seminal figures meet their spouses at the well. 
Why does the well play such an important role? Eliezer finds Rivka at the well. And Yaakov finds Rachel at the well. And here we have Moshe. Where does Moshe find his wife? Vayivrach Moshe, he runs. Vayeshev ala be'er. And where does he settle down? He sits by the well. Ulechoyin Midian, Sheva Banos, the priest of Midian, Yisra's seven daughters. Vatavona, Vatidlana, Vatimalana, Saratim. And they come in order to fill their pitchers and feed their animals. And that's where Moshe meets his wife as well. What is the significance of the well? We spoke about that at length. You can listen on Y.U. Torah. So, uh, Moshe, of course, is hiding at Midian. All the while, things are going from bad to worse in Egypt. The people are suffering absolutely terribly. But God decides the time of salvation has come. He hears their cries. Vayeyanchu, they cry out. Vayizaku, vatarshavasam. And their cries reach Hashem. Vayishma Elohim es na'akasam. He hears. Vayizkor Elohim es briso es Avraham es Yitzchak ves Yaakov. And he remembers the bris that he had given. He remembers. Vayizkor. It's very instructive. We say Yizkor a number of times a year. There's a book I want to write. In my mind, it's almost written. <laughs> On paper, it hasn't started. But about Yizkor, it's fascinating. The whole history of Yizkor, the laws of Yizkor, and the application of Yizkor to each of the Yom Tovim, a Yizkor, a, a, a Yizkor companion, a handbook. So anyway, so Vayizkor Elohim, God remembers. Does God ever forget that He needs to remember? No. So I once gave a Yizkor drasha employing this puzzle because you have to ask, when we say Yizkor, so at first blush, who is Yizkor for? It's for us. We gather on, on uh, Yom Kippur and on, on Sukkot, Pesach and Shavuos and we remember those who are no longer with us physically. The problem is, how does Yizkor begin with what words? Yizkor Elohim. We're not gathering for us to remember. On Yizkor, we're trying to tap God's memory, invoke God's memory. Yizkor Elohim. Does God forget that we need to remind Him? So what is the real reason that we say you're Yizkor? And what does it mean in this Pasuk, Vayizkor Elohim? What is the root of Yizkor? What does it mean to even imply or suggest that God needs to remember as if He forgets? As if He forgets. An extension of this question, by the way, is Rosh Hashanah. The three main sections of the Amidah of Musaf for Rosh Hashanah are Malchios, Zichronos, and Shofros. So what do you mean Zichronos? God, what all year long God forgets in Rosh Hashanah, He remembers? So what is this concept for another time? So Moshe is this uh, shepherd, liberator. He comes upon this burning bush. My favorite, my favorite uh, interpretation of the bush, which is on fire but never burns. I don't even remember where I heard it. But it is symbolic of what leadership, particularly Jewish communal leadership, means. You have to always be on fire. You have to be, never lose your passion. But you can never burn out. You can never get consumed. Maintain your passion without ever getting burnt out. That was the message for Moshe. The bush is on fire. You need to be on fire and be passionate, a passionate leader. But Enenu Ukal, it never became consumed because you can never, ever burn out. Moshe doubts. God reassures him. There's a funny conversation. Moshe says, well, I'm going to go down there. They're going to ask me who sent. So what's your name, God? God says, this is my name. And so on and so forth. A funny conversation. It all needs interpretation. He, uh, he comes down. He comes to the people. They doubt. God responds, Moshe embarks, Sipora circumcises her sons, Moshe seems to be delinquent in performing this duty of a father, Moshe and Aaron come to Paro, and the story begins. They say, let my people go, Paro says no, they complain to Moshe and Aaron, 
Moshe complains to God, what's the story? I thought you were going to free them. And that is a brief and superficial overview of the Parsha. Okay, now to the Psukim that we're going to study together. Beginning of Perak Bays. According to my records, that's approximately where we left off last year. Beginning of chapter 2, verse number 1. Vayelech ish mi Levi, vayikach as Bas Levi. A man went forth from the house of Levi, and he took a woman from the daughter of Levi. Now, it's somewhat troubling, this description. Why? Why not reveal who they are? Who are they? Look at the Rashbam. Rashi's grandson, Rabbi Shmuel ben Meir, says the Rashbam, Vayelech Ishmi Beis Levi, who Amram. This is Moshe's father, Amram. And what's Moshe's mother's name? Yocheved. So, why? I remember once uh, when I was uh, doing the outreach, long before there was a Rabbi Brody, when I came for the uh, Kolel to the community who was doing the outreach, I had copied an advertisement I think that Isha Torah had used, which is a great outreach advertisement to Jews. You posed the question, who is Jesus' mother? Who is Moshe's mother? If you only know the answer to one, you know, come to our classes, blah, 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 blah. Because the average non-observant or non-knowledgeable Jew knows, unfortunately, the answer to Jesus' mother, but not to Moshe's mother. So, here the Torah doesn't give us Moshe's mother's name. In fact, it's concealed from us until next week's Parsha, until Parsha's Vayera. Why aren't we told the name even earlier? Why aren't we told in this week's Parsha, when Moshe is born, this would be the appropriate place? Why is it only later in Vayera? So, Look at Rashi. Vayikach is Bas Levi. Perish. Haya mimen of Nezeres, mamanam of Nezeres Paro. The the uh, they were they were separated because of the Nezeres of Paro. Vechzira vaasa belakuchin shnim. Vaafi nevcha lios nara. What happened was Amram and Yocheved were married. They had Miriam and they had Aaron. Then Paro ordained that all babies, all Jewish men, boys who were born, would need to be slaughtered. The two looked at one another and said, We can't have more children. Our whole family is destroyed. The Jewish future, our people's future is destroyed. They gave up all hope. In fact, this is what we discussed last year in the Parsha class, that the implicitly the willingness to have children is a statement, it's an affirmation of belief in a brighter and better future. And when a person is suffering, when a person is hopeless, they stop having children. They don't want to bring children into a world of such pain and such suffering and such anguish. And when a people are willing to have children once again, it's an affirmation that they believe there's a brighter future. I shared with you that the greatest Jewish population growth in our history took place in the DP camps following the Holocaust. There was an amazing burst of fertility of Jewish children who were conceived and were born. What an amazing statement, what an affirmation that there would yet be a brighter future. But and particularly it's women who have that capacity and that capability, right? Again, without getting into it, we know that in the time when men had given up hope, the women used the mirrors to beautify themselves and to seduce and track their husbands, to continue to conceive, to have children, to be intimate together, and as a reward for essentially preserving Jewish continuity without which we would cease to have been a people. Those very mirrors were used as the 
basis as the bottom of the kior of the ba- of the basins in the mishkan and ultimately in the base hamikdash. So here you have Amram who says to his wife, "Forget it. It's over. I'm separating from you. I'm divorcing you." Our whole family unit's over. I'm depressed. I'm despondent. We're suffering. I'm going out backbreaking labor. I'm physically exhausted. I'm emotionally exhausted. I cannot see a brighter future. Our family structure, our entire family, as in the Jewish people, it's over. And what happens? Comes along little Miriam, who's how old at the time? Six years old. And convinces her parents to reunite. It's not true. It's worth it. It's going to be better. Things are going to improve. The sun is yet going to rise. The Jewish people are symbolized by the moon because the moon waxes and wanes. It's tiny and then it grows large again. Who celebrates the holiday of Rosh Chodesh? It was given to women because women are Roa Sanolad. They have the ability to see that which is not yet right in front of them but which is destined to come. The insight to anticipate that which will arrive. So she reunites her parents. Amram and Yocheved reunite. And they give birth to, they give birth to Moshe. So the first suggestion I saw of why they're not identified here is because they don't deserve to be identified. If it were up to them, there would be no Moshe Rabbeinu. If it were up to Amram and Yocheved, we wouldn't have had this incredible, unique, lone figure and influence in the Jewish people's history. Moshe Rabbeinu, one of the Rambam's 13 principles of faith, is to believe that the prophecy of Moshe, that Moshe, while a mere mortal man, but stands different than all other men. And this unique individual never would have come to this earth if it would be left to them alone. So therefore, as a sort of patch, at first in this week's Parsha, with his birth, their names are not given. It was Miriam who deserves, who deserves the credit. That's one interpretation. Rav Moshe Feinstein has an alternative interpretation. Says Rav Moshe Feinstein, says Rav Moshe Feinstein, you know, um, sometimes parents back off and they just allow the child to develop on their own. They don't nurture the child. They don't nourish the child. They don't see the skills. They don't see the beauty within the child and seek to, to chisel away until they reveal him. Remember we quoted Michelangelo a few weeks ago. Michelangelo's incredible quote when he would see a, a block... They asked Michelangelo how he sculpts so beautifully, so magnificently. And he said, I don't start chipping away and, you know, lo and behold, the result is this beautiful sculpture. He said, I look at a block of marble and I see the sculpture. And my job, my mission is to reveal it so everyone else can see what I see. And that's the definition of parenting, is to not see, not just chip away here and there and whatever will come out will come out, but to see the potential to see the greatness, to see what could be achieved and to help reveal so the rest of the world sees what we already see within that block of marble. So, um, so Rav Moshe Feinstein says, many times parents just chip here and chip there and whatever happens will happen. But the job of a parent is of course to see the potential within the child and to nourish and nurture it until it's ultimately revealed. So it's only in next week's Parsha, he says, when Moshe emerges the great leader of the people that he is, that's when their names are given so we understand that it's not just a, a product of chance, that yeah, they happen to give birth to this guy who would emerge to be our, uh, our, our leader. But no, the leader who he became was a result of the nurture of his parents. So in order for us to understand, had their names been given now when he was born, we'd say, yeah, it was a, 
it was chance of, of history that they gave birth to this person who would become the leader. But because the names are protected and hidden until he emerges as that leader, then we understand that he only became the leader he became because of the influence and because of the parenting of... What? He grew in the palace. He grew in the palace, but he still had access to his parents. We'll see right now. Who was the one who nursed him? Who did he maintain a relationship with despite being in the palace? How long can the mother nurse him? She was 130 years I understand, but she, she maintained that relationship even while he was yet in the palace. He was the product of his parents. He was the product of his parents. And all the more so. Maybe his name is revealed later to tell us that when he emerges as the person he is, he was the product of his parents, not the product of the palace. So why was he betwixt when he saw the Egyptian hitting the Jew? Uh, because he still, Lemaissa, he lived in the palace. Lemaissa, he still was raised by the daughter of Paro. So he had this dual citizenship. He was raised by two matrons. And so he felt conflicted about who was, the real, who was his real mother, who was really his parent, both literally and figuratively, who were his parent figures. A third interpretation maybe is, appropriate for this time of year and for today, what the Shulchan Aruch calls Naya Yar, Yom Ches Achar Nittel, <laughs> the eighth day, the bris of uh, someone else whom we will not mention. Um, so uh, perhaps the Pasuk is telling us, Vayelech Ish mi Beis Levi, Vayikach is Bas Levi. Know that Moshe Rabbeinu, who would be the mechanism, the catalyst of redemption, he was the product of man. A man had a union with a woman, and that's where Moshe came from somewhat prophetically. Lest you think that Moshe, this Redeemer, was a product of some other immaculate event. Understand? Vayelech ish mi Levi. There was a mere mortal human who went to Baslevi, a mere mortal human, and the product of the two was this Moshe, not anything else. So, three potential interpretations. But let's see a few more of the Mephoshim. What do you mean Vayelech? So the Balaturim tells us we have another place where the Torah uses the same Tanakh uses the same language. Vayelechish says the Balaturim of Yaakov ben Asher. Beis b'mesora. Twice it says Vayelechish. Here, hacha, Vayelechish from Beis Levi, Vayikach is Bas Levi. And Vayidrach, the other places, Vayelechish from Beis Lechem Yehuda. It's the opening pasuk of the Megillas. Rus, Rut. A man from the house of Beis Lechem Yehuda went. Lomar. Why the same language in both places? Teach us, Ayyidei halicha zu ba hagol harishon, Vayyidei oso halicha, Yavo hagol achron, Shu Mashiach ben David, Yavo b'mhera v'yameinu. Vayelech, in both places, this Vayelech, this union, led to the birth of a Redeemer. Here the Vayelech, here this initiation, this act of intimacy, led to the birth of Moshe, and Vayelech ish m'beis lachem Yehuda led the whole book of Rus is, results in the story of David HaMelech. David is the progenitor of Mashiach B'mehera Shemikam Sheyavo B'mehera V'yameinu. Notes the Balaturim. Amen. We should say, we should David Musaf. Call it a day. No. Yeah. But not, but not this Vayelech Ish. Vayelech Ish. That's what the Balaturim is picking up on. Okay. The Ramban also has something to say here. Says the Ramban, That's the Gemara Sota that I referenced to you. What's the Vayelech? What do you mean Vayelech? Where did he come from? Where was he going? They're living in Egypt. They're not going on a vacation. They're not traveling so far. What says Vayelech? So the first interpretation we shared was Vayelech. He went after. He followed the advice of his daughter, little six-year-old Miriam. 
said to her father, Daddy, Abba, Tati, what are you doing living apart from mommy? We're a family. It's going to be better. Things are going to improve. There's a brighter future. So Vayelech meant, he went after, he followed the advice of his daughter. Rabbi uh, Avram, he's talking about the Ibn Ezra, Ramban's quoting the Ibn Ezra, Ki ba'arim yoshvim. Ibn Ezra is a literalist. If you're taking people of the book, have they done Ibn Ezra yet? Yes? So Ibn Ezra often is a, is a grammarian and he's a literalist. So here the Ibn Ezra says, Vayelech, don't tell me, he followed the advice of his daughter, Vayelech, he went after. Ah, Vayelech means literally, there were many cities in Egypt. So he went from the one city he was living to the other city because they had been separate. Says the Ramban, what do I need to know this? Now, says the Ramban, the Torah is just telling us, when the Torah wants to tell us that there's something new, it's a new beginning, it's a new chapter, a new dawn on human history, it tells us, something new in the story is about to unfold. And that's the use of Vayelech. This is a new chapter. He, he, acted with alacrity. He became enthusiastic. He aroused himself to be able to go and to start a new beginning. Says the Ramban, our question, why not tell us the names? The Ramban gives an answer. Not my favorite answer. But the Ramban says, because if you're going to start saying who Moshe's parents are, then you'll have to talk about who their parents are, and who their parents are, all the way back to Levi. And this is not the place to give the whole Yichus chart. We're going to give it soon. We'll give it soon when we talk about the rest of the Shvatim as well. That's his answer. So how do we summarize the Yichus chart? Ishmi Beis Levi, Leikach Bas Levi. We know it was all in the family of Levi, and that's all you need to know for now, says the Ramban. So we have four answers why their names are concealed. The Ramban says, we don't have room, it's not the time to get into the Yichas. We saw the other reason is, they don't deserve for their names to be revealed. If it were up to them, Moshe would have never been born. It was the initiation, it was the insight of Miriam. Number three, we saw Rav Moshe Feinstein, it would only be with the association later to tell us that who nurtured Moshe, Moshe emerged this leader not because of the influence of Basparo, although her also, but ultimately he was the product of Amram and Yochevet. And number four, the Ibn Ezra says, no, the Ibn Ezra was Vayelech, they went from another city. What was number four? Did we, oh, number four might be to remind us that Moshe Rabbeinu, this great redeemer, was the product of mere mortal man and nothing more than that. Pasuk base. Vatara Isha Bateled Ben. The woman gave conceived and she gave birth to a boy. She saw that he was good and she hid him for three months. She hid him for three months. What's going on here? So first of all, Vatahar. The Ibn Ezra's bothered. Why did we neglect the birth of the siblings? Lohiskir Akasov Ladas Miriam Baaram. What are they? Uh, chopped liver? <laughs> we don't mention the birth of Miriam and Aaron. We act as if this is their first child. <laughs> you know why? There was nothing new at their birth. They were born in a time in which it was permissible to have children. And they, there was nothing unique, remarkable about their birth. 
Now, what is the word tov? Pasuk says she conceived, she gave birth, and she saw he was tov. What does that mean he was tov? And all of them are farshim way in here. Again, the reason we study our parsha this way, what we've been doing for a number of years, is to develop a sensitivity to the text. We listen to the parsha Shabbos morning, or if we're good boys and girls, we're studying it throughout the week, Shnai Mikra, and we just read and we gloss over and we don't stop and ask ourselves, what in the world does it mean? So what is Tov? She saw her little boychik was good. What does it mean, Kitov? So, Ibn Ezra says, Umilas Tov kasher timtza biish malay das. She saw that he was filled with wisdom. She looked in his eyes. By the way, I noticed this in my son the other day too, so it's possible. <laughs> she saw, she saw, he was malay das. Yitachain heyoso b'neshama. Kimo tov im Hashem v'tov im anashim. O tov ayin, o beguf, o betzora, tov toar, o mara. Ibn Ezra says tov could mean every, anything here. She saw he was handsome. She saw he was healthy. She saw his body was tov. He had ten fingers and ten toes, right? The first thing you do when your baby comes out. You start counting the fingers and the toes. You start looking, is that two ears? Nose, the eyes look like they're working, everything. She saw Tov. He was bored and she saw Tov. So Tov could mean he was handsome. Tov could mean he was whole. Tov could mean Tovim Hashem, the Tovim Anashim. It's a little early to see that, but you know, he looked up and he smiled and he, he, uh, he brought out uh, the positive in others. Tov could mean all these things. Tov mina yiludim. Could also mean that he was tov, he was he was exceptional. He was an exceptional child. He was uh, I look at my son, I say he's athletic and he's smart and social and he's all of these uh, all of these things, Bli Ayan Hara. So that's the Ibn Ezra. Yes. The decree that Paro gave to kill the boys change yeah. that the fact that after they were born he wouldn't kill them? Um no, that's why they had to be, he had to be hidden. That's why he was hidden. So it, was, it, it, could, it, it, it remained in place. Absolutely. That's why he had to be hidden. And that's why they put him in the Nile. It says when they gave birth, they couldn't come on time. Right. Once the baby was born, it didn't say they could Right, so you're right. So why didn't Paro send them to these homes and check? Because I guess at that point, when a woman is pregnant, I guess you could... Right, why didn't Paro identify where homes that had given birth and find them and kill them? It's a good question, I don't know. So what is Tov? So Ibn Ezra says Tov could mean any of these things. Says Rashi, Kishinolad kula ora. What does Tov mean? All of a sudden he was born, the house was filled with light. The house was filled with light. So she could see there was something special about this boy. By the way, what does light mean? So you could literally say light, meaning that there was a, a new light, there was a brightness that illuminated. Or figuratively you could say, this was a depressed home. Remember what the conversations had been. Hopeless, no future, don't have a child. And here this boy is born and they say, you know what? It's going to be okay. There's going to be a brighter future. It was worth it. Miriam was right. The house was filled with the light of the joy of a new child. That's what Rashi says. Says the... Uh, who should we do next? Everybody has something to say here. Says the Balaturim, Kitovu, Hey Tagen. Each of the letters has crowns on top. Right? Yesterday's Dafyomi. If you learn the Dafyomi, God tied the crowns on top of the letters. Each of the letters in the Torah scroll itself are not written the way we have them, but they have crowns on top of the letter. So there are five crowns in these three words, Kitovu. Bez Betes, Alef Bevav, Ubez Bebez. Lomar, 
שעשו לקבל חמישה חומשי תורה, כי לקח טוב נסעתי לכם. So, כי טוב הוא, says the Balaturamin, she looked at him and she saw, כי טוב הוא, he's going to be the one who receives the לקח טוב, which is the Torah, חמישה חומשי תורה. Okay, cute homiletic suggestion. Says the Svarno, Rav Avadya Svarno, כי טוב הוא, יפה, כמו כי טוב הוא סיינה. He was more handsome than normal. All the other kids came out with baby acne and oily and no hair. And this kid was handsome. It was perfect. A handsome exterior reveals a handsome interior. She understood and she saw he looked different. He looked more developed. He looked more handsome. And he, he had a bright countenance. He would be the messenger. He could be the ambassador for greatness. She saw that and she saw Kitovu, that he was good. Says the Rashbam, Rashi's grandson, he says, some interpret, go back to the Pasuk, you could read it, what was good that she hid him. He says, but that's Shekhar, that's wrong. Because all mothers love their children and want to hide them. It's not like a mother would give birth and half the mother said, eh, not worth saving. Paro, come and take him. And this mother said, ah, oh, this one, this one's a keeper. Let's hide him. No, says this Rashbam, every mother loves the child as Rachamim. What does she see about him? Right, this Pasuk says the Rashbam parallels creation. When God creates the world, it says, Vayar, he saw Kitov that it was good. So here, Vatera, she saw Kitov that it was good. What's the parallel? She looked to see whether there was anything she had done that needed to be corrected or repaired, anything that needed to be improved, and she saw it was all good. Afkan, right, that was Hashem. So Afkan, Lefishim, Moshe, Moshe, we have a tradition, was born at the end of the sixth month. He was a primi. That's why she hid him for three months. Because Paro wasn't expecting him. So she was able to keep him hidden for three months. She was able to hide him. They kept a ledger. They knew which women were pregnant. And they knew it was time to come see them at the end of nine months. That's when they were going to come collect the Jewish children to kill them. So Moshe was born prematurely at the end of six months. She was able to hide him for three months. So what was Vatera? Because if you have a baby born at the end of six months, you're going to look closely to see if everything's okay. How is his breathing? Are his lungs developed? Is he alive? Is he a stillbirth? If he was a nafel, if he's a stillbirth, she doesn't need to hide him. She saw that he's healthy. Because he had hair, his nails were grown. These are the signs, the Yavamos, that the Yadashu Bar Kayama. These are the signs that this is a developed child. But she hid him for three months. At Sof Tes Yerachim, she was manledes Rov Anashim. So the end of nine months, which is the average gestational period. Now they came to see her. The end of nine months. By then she's already thin. It's been three months since she gave birth. They say, "Where's your baby? What happened?" 
She says, I had a miscarriage. I had a stillbirth. I lost him in the sixth month. Oh, Or she could say, he was born prematurely three months ago. You already, they came, they already threw him in the river. So that's the Rashbam. It's a great insight, right? Vatere Oso Kitovu said the Ibn Ezra, ah, she saw he was handsome, he was smart, he was athletic, he was creative, he was artistic, right? The way a lot of fathers, a lot of mothers look at their children. Says the Rashbam, no. She gave birth after six months. What was she looking at? Is he alive? Is he vibrant? Is he healthy? Is he complete? He was. And so she was able to hide him for three months. And she was given the pretext to be able to tell the Mitzram at the end of nine months. They knock on the door. They say, you look thin. What's going on? Where's the baby? And you're thin. She says, I gave birth three months ago and it was a stillbirth. Or I gave birth three months ago and your people already did their cruel work. But in either case, that's how she was able to get rid of them. That's what the Rashbam says. Says the Ramban. All mothers love their children. Good looking and ugly babies. And all mothers will do everything they can to hide and protect their children. You don't need kitovu to be motivated to hide your child. She thought in him something new. She thought, you know what? She's going to be able to continue to protect him. She's not going to have to give him up. Kitovu meant he is a catalyst of good. Something's going to change. She won't have to give him up. Lo and behold, she did have to give him up. So she built this little ark, this little boat for him to float in. So, and the Orachayim also has a pshat here. Orachayim quotes the Medrash in Shmos Rabbah. What does it mean, Kitovu? That he was Nolad Mahul. He was born circumcised. There was something special. This happens once in a while. We had a baby born here a number of years ago. Born circumcised. You still have to do a tafas dambris. You have to take out a drop of blood. But Moshe Rabbeinu was born Mahul. He was born Gamalt. He was born with a bris. So we saw four or five interpretations. What is kitovu? The point is, don't gloss over the words. You see, Moshe's born, his mother looks, she sees he's good. What was bothering all these mafarshim? Right? We always say that they, they don't offer a comment spontaneously, they're bothered by a question. What bothered them? What do you mean, vatero so kitovu vatitzbenehu? She saw he was good, she hit him. What, and if he was ugly, she wouldn't have hit him? If he was no good, he's not a keeper. All mothers, this is what the premise of that they're all asking. All mothers love their children. They'll do anything to protect them. What do you mean, Kitovu? She had to see that he was good. So what does it mean, good? What was the good that she saw he was that was worthy of protection? Okay, continuing. Pasa Gimel. So far we've done a whopping two psukim. V'lo yachla od. That's Bino. She could no longer hide him. She took a little teva. She coated it with a waterproof substance. She placed the child in it. And she placed this uh, basket. She placed this uh, little uh, river in the reeds at the bank of the river. Basuf. And the reeds on the edge of the river. What happens? The sister, whose name is also not revealed, by the way, she deserved for it to be revealed, 
given our interpretation earlier, the sister positions herself from a distance to know, to see what's going to happen with this boy chick. What's going to be with her brother. Right? What incredible love from a sister, an older sister. A model. The daughter of Paro goes down to wash Al, not Biyor. Right? Again, sensitivity to the text. It should have said, she went down to wash in the river. It doesn't say that. And her maidens go also adjacent to the river. She sees the, the um, basket floating in the reeds. She sends her maidservant to take the basket. And she opens it. She opens it and she sees the boy. And behold, there's a child crying. She has pity on him. And she says, She identifies him as being a Jewish child. Okay? So let's try to go through these psukim. Running out of time. Story of our life. So, Vatered, let's start with Pasukhe. Let's go to Pasukhe. Or Pasuk Dalad. Why did Miriam position herself to see? She couldn't give up. She couldn't give up hope. She didn't want to believe this would be the last contact with her brother. Says the, the Sforno, says the Sforno, Mitzrim was the ultimate place of lasciviousness and licentiousness and decadence and moral depravity. Egypt was a place of no morals. People were sleeping with one another. Children had no idea who their parents were. They had no idea what their yichus was. So Miriam was worried that someone would come and claim this baby and he'd be raised as a child and no one else knew whose children were whose. And that's what she was waiting to see. Who would accept him? Who would take him? Who would adopt him in? Because she wanted to be able to track his progress and his growth. She continued to love him, which is an incredible quality of a sister. What happens? Vatered Bas Paro. The daughter of Paro goes down to wash on the river. That's the simple understanding is that she's going down to wash on the river. Look at the Ramban. The Ramban quotes the Ramban, uh, Rashi. If it's true that she went to go wash in the river, so you have to read on the river as El to the river. Okay, and that's legitimate. We see these psukim elsewhere where we see the word al reading as el. An means to. So here, Basparo, Basya, was going to the river, in the river, not just on the river. But the Ramban doesn't like it. The Ramban says, here's what I think it means. The river had steps going down into it. She went from the palace to the first step going down into the river. She didn't go into the river itself. She didn't go deep into the river. She's a princess. She belongs on the first step where the river meets the palace. And from that first step she sees the basket. Far from her. And so she sends her maidservant to go get the basket. So says the Ramban, what does it mean? Al 
said Rashi Alayor means Elayor. She went in the river. Says Rabbanu, Alayor means on the river. She stood on a step in the river. She's a princess. She's not in the river like everybody else. She goes on the step in the river where the river meets the palace and is considered an extension part of the palace itself. The um, the Svarno says a similar thing to the Ramban. Look at the Svarno. The princess, the daughter of a king, she doesn't just go out. You're not going to run into the princess at Starbucks. The princess doesn't just to hang out on the street. She's not hanging out in the JCC pool. If she's in the Yor, she's in a private, segregated section of the Yor. And says the Svarna, like the Ramban, that's what it means, Allah Yor, on the river, not in the river in the same place where everyone else bathes, but in a secluded, in a secluded place of the river. But there's even more. Because the Gemara and Sota, Dafyud Bez, which gives us insights into all that's going on here in these Psukim, the Gemara and Sota tells us that Paro's daughter went down to the river not simply to bathe or to swim. Why did Paro go to the river? To relieve himself. Because he didn't want to he didn't want to give the impression that he was human. He presented himself as a deity. So he'd go down to the river to relieve himself. Why did Basparo go down? Not simply to bathe or to swim. She came to the banks of the Nile, says the Gemara in Sota, to purify herself from the idol worship of her father. See, this young woman, we could do an hour class, we have nine minutes left. Who was Basparo? Who was she? She's not an ordinary person. And she's not just a chance character in the story. She's a very special person. She was very turned off to her father's idolatry and paganism. She went down to the Nile. The Nile served as her mikvah. She went down to the Nile daily. She slept in her father's disgusting pagan palace filled with idols. And she'd begin her day by purifying herself in the river. And that's why the Torah uses the term by the river, not in the river, to tell us that her intentions were more than mundane. That's what the Maharsha there in the Gemara Sota says. To tell us al or she went al or to reveal that her intentions were not just mundane, but her intentions were noble. She wanted to purify herself. Now understand the significance of purifying herself in the Nile Davka, because what was the Nile? It was a deity worshipped by her father. The Nile was the god of Egypt. The fact that she used the Nile to purify herself from the gods was the ultimate demonstration of rejecting the pagans of her father and of Egyptian culture. So she's not Stam a person. She is a very special person. In fact, the Balaturim alludes to this. It says, Vatered Basparo, Sof Tevos. The last letters of Vatered Basparo are Dalid, Tof Hey, Dasa, which means her religion. Malamed, Shashin Sadasa, Shahochal is Gair. Vatered Basparo, the last letter spelled Dasa, her religion. She went down to the river to convert. How do you convert? In the mikvah. Every day she would go to the river to convert, to affirm her conversion, to validate her conversion from the paganism with which she was raised. She wanted to distance herself and separate herself from the idolatry of her father and of the people of Mitzrayim of Egypt. Vatered basparo softevos dasa shahochalez gayer. She went down to convert. She's not stam an ordinary person. In fact, what's her name? Her name is Basia. 
Her name is Basia. <laughs> and but the Torah doesn't give us her name, although the Torah does later in Divrei Ayamim. Later in Divrei Ayamim, the uh, Torah delineates all of the children of Basia. The Gemara gives a, the I'm sorry, in Divrei Ayamim gives a list a list of the daughters of of Basia, and many understood that it's the same Basia here of the daughter of Paro. Divrei Ayamim Aleph Perak Dalid. The Gemara gives a list of the children of Basia, and the Gemara explains those are really all different names. When it says the children of Basia and Divrei Ayamim, all those children are different names for none other than Moshe Rabbeinu. Moshe Rabbeinu. So she's designated, the Gemara Megillah Yudgimel, she's designated as the mother of Moshe. Now we talked about, again, this dual identity and the role of Yocheved, but Basia is not some, some pagan influence. She herself is a remarkable woman, a woman who had converted, who had abandoned and distanced herself from the paganism of her father. And in fact, that's what her name means. How do we know her name? It comes from the Medrash. And the Medrash in Vayikar Rabbah tells us, what is her name? Bez Tuf Yud Hey. Bas Ya. She's the daughter of Hashem. She's the daughter of Hashem. She's the daughter of God. She's a remarkable woman. Again, we could speak on and on and on about her. The courage when your father is the king who worships pagans and leads a nation of pagans to reject it and to go to the Nile every day and to be the special woman and to have the compassion that we're going to see in a moment. She is a special, she's a special woman. Um, okay, so what happens... She, in fact, is the one, we'll see in a moment, who gives the name to Moshe that we accept, as we said. So she goes down and she stretches, Now what does it mean, Amasa? Says Rashi, Shifchasa. Simple understanding is like an Ama, Ama Ivriya. She sent one of her servants. She's on the first step. She sees this basket. She says to one of her servants, she says, uh, Hey, uh, Barbara, go get the basket. There's a baby. Quick, get the basket. But Rashi quotes an additional interpretation. Rabbi Darshan Lashon Yad. Ama could also mean your hand. For example, how do we know Ama means a hand, an arm? The measurement of an Ama is the measurement of your hand. So asks, she, she stretches her hand. She stretches her hand. And the Gemara Tzota tells us that this basket was well out of reach of Basya, of Basparo, but she stretched out her arm and a miracle occurred that her arm extended well beyond its natural length and she was able to bring in the basket. Ask the Kutzka Rebbe, nice story, beautiful miracle, her arm extended. But why in the world would she try to extend her arm? If her arm was only uh, two feet and the basket was six feet away, what, what, what was she doing? So Kutzka Rebbe has a great insight. Katsuka Rebbe says, sometimes in life, we need to reach for the stars and Hashem will allow us to stretch to get there. But if we never reach for the stars, then how can we even hope for a miracle occur to achieve there? You need to reach for the stars. So that's who this remarkable woman was. Her first instinct was to reach. Had she stopped to think, yeah, my arm is a foot and a half, he's six feet, there's no way in the world I can get it. You know, if you're walking, you drop your keys into the sewer, you drop your keys in the bank of a river, even though it's impossible to get them, you're not going to not try. You're not going to say, oh, it's impossible. You're going to reach as if you could, because that's your instinct. 
That was her instinct. She saw this baby, her instinct was to reach. Even though it was reaching for the stars, it was well beyond her grasp. Sometimes you have to reach beyond your grasp. What was the line Rabbi Friend had from the Siam Ashas last summer? That which is beyond our reach is still within our grasp. Something like that. Right? When you learn Dafyomi, that which, even that which is beyond our reach is still within our grasp. So that's Basparo. Even though she, there was no reason physically that she should have been able to get it, she reaches in order and she's able to, uh, and she's able to get it. So what happens? She opens and she sees a child crying and she has pity on him. Asks Rav Nissen Alpert. Rav Nissen Alpert was a Rosh Hashiva at Yeshiva University and he was one of the prized Talmidim of Rav Moshe Feinstein. Rav Nissen Alpert. So Rav Nissen Alpert, the Colonel of Racha, at Rav Moshe Feinstein's Leviah spoke and in his hesped he asked the following question. He said, the Pasuk seems to be very out of order. The sequence should have been, she opened the basket, she saw the baby, she saw it was a Jewish child, she heard it crying, and she had pity on him. Right? She should have been connected to the baby, recognized it was a Jewish child. But it doesn't say that. Pasuk says, instead, after seeing the baby, she hears him crying, she has pity, then she recognizes he's a Jewish child. Why is it out of order? So we don't have any time, but I wanted to bring that question to your attention. So if Nissan Alpert has that question, he has a Sefer on Chomish called Limude Nisan. He was a Talmud of Rav Moshe. And he used his answer to that question to give Divrei Hesped about Rav Moshe Feinstein, about the relationship of Chesed the Emes. But I want to leave you here. Pasuk Vav. She sees it. She sees She opens the basket and she observes a Na'ar Boche. Says Rashi, Kolokin Na'ar. The voice that she heard of this baby crying was like a nar. It was not a baby. She heard the voice of a nar. What's a nar? A lad. Somebody who's a little bit older. Says Rashi, kolo kinar. Okay, Moshe was unusual. His voice was deep. His voice was, was deep like a nar. The uh, Ibn Ezra says, what does it mean, kolo nar? Hayu evar of gedolim. Kilu hunar. V'rasayu mol. Uva'avur yafyo chamla alav. V'zetam kitovu. Says the Ibn Ezra, his limbs were developed and she saw that he was circumcised. So he didn't give the impression of a newborn baby. His eyes were focused, his limbs, he was moving his arms and legs. He had a circumcision. He gave the impression of being even older than his chronological age. And that's what the Tovu, that was the good that his mother saw. And that's what Bas Paro now says, sees. That's what the Ibn Ezra says. Says the Balaturim, something incredible. No, you know what Vihinei Narboche is? By the way, the Ramban's not bothered at all. The Ramban says, no, even a baby can be called a nar. So, we have a number of answers. Why is it a nar? Rashi says, his voice was deep like a nar. Ibn Ezra says, his body was developed by a nar. The Ramban says, even a baby can be called a nar. Says the Balaturim, no. You know who this nar is? Who's the nar bocheh? Ze'aron. She'nichaso eitzelateva. It wasn't just Miriam who positioned herself to watch to see what was going to happen. You know who the nar bocheh is? This little boy is crying. Now look at the Pasuk. How'd she know it was a Jewish child? She knew it was a Jewish child because she saw his brother crying. The way a Jew cries for another Jew, feels sympathy and empathy, identifies and cries for another. How did she know? Because she saw She saw not the baby crying. She saw Aaron crying. Here there's a baby floating. She discovers this baby and she hears whimpering. 
And she looks up and there's a brother and there's a sister and they're watching knowing that they have to put this child in the river in order for him to live. But they're crying over being separated from their brother. And she understands, This is a Jewish child. And she has this pity and she takes him in. Hold on. And she struggles. She can't... Uh, Feed him, you know, we'll have to pick up with this next year that she can't uh, nurse him. Moshe won't drink from any of the... Uh, Rav Yaakov Kamenetsky has a great insight I was going to share. We'll start with the next year about why Rav Moshe didn't drink from these uh, Egyptian women and only from his own mother. But I'll just end that, again, what's the name that he has? Vatikrashma Moshe, she calls him Moshe. Because from the water he was drawn forth. Says the Ibn Ezra here. What does it mean from the water... He was drawn forth. Moshe, says the Ibn Ezra, is an Egyptian name. Shem Moshe meturgam milashan mitzrim balashan akodesh. It is the Hebrew equivalent of the Egypt. Ushmo balashan mitzrim haya Monius. Monius was his Egyptian name. Monius is Egyptian for drawn from the water. The Hebrew translation of this Egyptian name is Moshe, and that's the name we call him. And I mentioned earlier, it's somewhat startling. That here he has all of these names Yered, Chever, Yikusil, Gedor, Socho, Zana. Moshe has all these names. And what's the name we call him? Moshe. The name that was given to him by Bas Paro. And why is that the name that we call him? The Yalkut Shimoni is intrigued. That we call him Moshe to tell us that uh, there's a few different reasons which are given. But one is that Basparo had the sympathy, the sensitivity to take him in and to give him this name. So Moshe's beginnings were through sensitivity and compassion, and that therefore is the name that we continue to, to know him by. Another reason is, Minamayim Mishisu. It's very interesting. It means, it's very passive. From the water he was drawn forth. Not sh- I drew him forth. He was drawn forth. That means she understood that there was something divine in the way he emerged from the water. He was born, Moshe, Mishisu, he was born in a divine way. This was destined to be. So that's the most accurate description of Moshe as having been divinely appointed as a leader and that's why we give him that name. There are many other reasons why specifically we adopt that name and not other names. As I said, we could speak for an hour, an hour about who this Basparo is but we are out of time. Unfortunately, we have to stop here.